before the world was made, before you spoke it to be. You were the King of kings, yes you were, yes you were, and now you're reigning still, enthroned above all things. Angels and saints cry out, we join them as we sing, glory to God. Oh, glory to God, yeah, glory to God forever. Glory to God, oh, glory to God, yeah, glory to God forever. Stand up on your feet. Let's find somebody and tell them good morning. Singing 
That was the lamest clap ever. It's like, okay. I mean, if you're going to clap, clap, okay? That's just. Anyway, good morning, everybody. So good to. <laughs> that's even worse than the clap. We take a deep breath. Exhale. We're so glad you're here. Welcome, welcome. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 13 this morning. And if you're visiting with us, whether you're in the room or on the internet, we're awfully glad to have you with us. So you'll want to grab your Bible and join us in a few minutes. Um, I uh, actually, I want to introduce my future daughter-in-law. Zach, would you stand up and, and, and Hannah and Zach, will you stand up so they can see you? This is what they look like. He was nine yesterday, and today he's 17. <laughs> they are getting married in March, and we're very, very excited. And uh, welcome to the family, Hannah. So make sure you inundate her with hugs and all that stuff. So, Huh? Is she an illusion? Is she an illusion? A magic joke makes the day great. <laughs> anyway, you know, it is, it is a crazy time in our world. I don't know if you know that. Country is crazy, but in this place, we come here and we put away politics because that's not the most important. Our relationship with this country is not the most important thing in our life. It's our relationship with Jesus Christ, and we come together to worship 
and we put aside our political angles and we put aside our agendas and we come here to get to know God better. And the scripture says where the spirit of the Lord is, there's peace. So this is a place of peace. This is where we come, like I said, to put all that stuff away and focus on the Lord and what he has done and what he wants to teach us. So thanks for being here this morning. Um, I would encourage you to avoid intense conversations about, about all stuff going on because this is the place where, where the Lord reigns. You know what I'm talking about? And Satan is using division in this country to create more and more hate that has nothing to do with the body of Christ. Right? Okay. All three of you said right. So the rest of you, we want you to know that that's the truth. So thanks for being here this morning. You'll notice that uh, we aren't right or left. We're right in the middle with Jesus Christ. And, uh, and, and if you are politically angry on the left or on the right, you've got a vote coming up, leave it in the ballot box. Because your calling as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is to love people no matter where they are politically. And Satan wants to use this to divide us. I just want you to know that. He wants to use this to divide God's people. And when we're divided, we can't share the hope of Christ with others. We are a hopeful people, aren't we? And uh, so that's all I want to say about that. But I wanted to remind you that it is still well with our souls. And lots of crazy stuff going on, but none of that is, is, is crazy in the body of Christ. So anyway, I, a couple things I want to highlight in the worship guide. If you are visiting with us this morning, I'd love to meet you right after the service. I'd love to hug your neck and shake your hand. And Julie and I will be up here after the service, uh, answer any questions you may have. We had a new members class last week, and it was packed. Lots of, lots of exciting things going on there. And uh, um, so uh, what we do, if you're interested in becoming a member, is four times a year we offer on a Sunday morning. It parallels Sunday morning worship and Bible study time. Um, we have a new uh, Carpenter's Way 101, we call it, or What is Carpenter's Way, or a new members class. It goes by all those names. Uh, we'll have another one first of the year, um, and, uh, but we will definitely have more. But if you have questions, please come and ask them. We want to answer those questions. So um, uh, if you, oh, one more thing about voting. Uh, today, after worship, if you're interested in registering, uh, there, uh, Sharon will be in the welcome area, and you can register to vote so you can participate and leave it in the ballot box. I say that again. Uh, so, but but uh, there's your opportunity. Uh, otherwise, there's lots of interesting information uh, in the worship guide that you can be paying attention to. We have another fifth quarter party for students uh, this Friday. Women's Bible studies have just started up. Uh, there's actually a job opening in the Mother's Day Out program. It's a paid position. If you're interested in working with children, that information's in there. Uh, one final thing as our ushers come forward to take our offering right now, and that is to remind you that as much fun as we have in here, the relationships are actually built, which is what the church is centered on, the relationship with Jesus Christ and then each other. That takes place in our Bible study groups, and we have a couple that take place before this service at 8.30, and then we have uh, many others that take place immediately following the service. So we would encourage you to be involved in those. Um, and uh, so uh, if, you are, if you have questions about that, again, you can come up after the service or at the welcome table. There's uh, information on all those Bible studies. We'd love for you to jump in and be a part of those so you can build relationships. Let's pray and commit, uh, commit our time to the Lord. Father, we're thankful that you have called us here to worship you today. And I thank you, Father, for those who aren't feeling well. They can watch on the Internet or those that are traveling. And Lord, I pray that those uh, who are here this morning would hear from you. As we worship you, I pray that you would hear from us. I pray that our hearts would be pure before you. I pray that we would, uh, that we would be surrendered to you, Father. That you would, your Holy Spirit that lives within your children and that, that resides around those that are not your children would call us to yourself and speak to us in, in, in ways we need to be spoken to. 
Thank you for the privilege of worshiping in this country. Thank you for this wonderful country, Father, where we can disagree and, and, uh, and work through our issues, Father. And I pray that your church would rise up at this time of conflict and be the people of peace, that we would not join the fight, but we would, we would float above it under the power of God as a people of peace and hope. May we be hopeful. So we ask you now, Lord Jesus, to guide us, direct us, control what is said, control our thoughts, and focus us on you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As the offering plates up being passed, I just wanted to share one more thing with you guys. Um, about a little over a year ago, I don't know if you remember, we started doing a young adults Bible study. And uh, for the last year, we've been meeting in our house. And uh, we've been praying about and trying to figure out a way to get on campus. And so we could actually try to reach the students on AC campus. And uh, just over the last couple of weeks, uh, some stuff has come together. And we've actually been able to uh, establish a student organization on AC, uh, which is the same name we've been doing, Identity. And so we're going to start meeting on campus uh, this coming Tuesday night. And uh, it's kind of a big deal, uh, so you should get excited about that. Um, thank you. Thank you. There you are. But no, it's, it's one of those things like uh, we, were, we were talking about it and praying about it, and I don't know if we've ever had, I don't know if we've ever had something on campus for the students of AC um, since I can remember. And it's always, uh, I think Angelina College has always been kind of an afterthought. It's kind of like that's not really college, so we don't really have to invest in those people. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, we've been praying about it along with Sabrina and um, some of the students there have started an organization. And we're going to meet on Tuesday nights at 7 o'clock there on campus. And uh, the goal is just to share the gospel and uh, see what God does. And uh, so if you're at all interested in helping with that, if you're at all interested in volunteering, being a part of some college students' lives, Catch me or Sabrina sometime. Uh, catch us in the hall or whatever, and uh, we'll be glad to kind of give you some information. But, yeah, that's starting this Tuesday at 7 o'clock. So be praying for us. Be praying that God keeps opening doors and giving us opportunities to, uh, to speak into these students' lives. Cool? All right.
saints adore you. Oh, and all the saints adore you. Heaven bows before you. Worthy is the great I am. Oh, and all the saints adore you. Heaven bows before you. Worthy is the great I am. Oh, and all the saints adore you. Heaven bows before you. Worthy is the great I am. Oh, and all the saints adore you. Heaven bows before you. Worthy is the great I am. Lift him high, all praise to Jesus. Lift him high for all to see. Lift him high, the cross of Calvary, where mercy died to set us free. Lift him high, all praise. sing about your power. Each morning I will sing with joy about your unfailing love, for you have been my refuge, a place of safety when I'm in distress. O oh, my strength, to you I sing praises, for you, O oh God, are my refuge, the God who shows me unfailing love.
hope you'll sing the song more. Um, because at the end of the day, uh, politics has never been the answer to what ails people's souls. It's Jesus Christ. And He is the answer. He is your peace. And I encourage you to embrace Him. I encourage you to jump in His lap and let Him lead you and guide you. Um, because with, with all that has happened, I remember having a bag phone. Does anybody, you guys remember having a bag phone in your car? It was like a buck a minute to use it. I uh, wish I still had it. You could sell it for like $9 now. I could have held on to it for like 35 years. But um, man, with all this social media stuff, uh, you know, we, they've been talking for years about needing a national conversation. Man, that is not the conversation. If you want to have a conversation with somebody on the other side of the aisle, sit in your living room over a cup of coffee. It's really hard to tell somebody off that's sitting in front of you. And uh, I encourage you on the right and the left to embrace Jesus Christ. And, and at the end of every conversation, and, and some need to be had, you guys, on what kind of country we want to have and stuff, but I, I'm just telling you, there's a lot of lying going on on both sides, misrepresenting each other's points of view. Take a deep breath and remember that the one point of view that changes a person's soul is Jesus Christ. So be involved, vote, but leave the ballot box in the ballot box. If God calls you to run for office, run for office. But you be a man or woman of integrity and, uh, and, and fight for truth, fight for truth. And, and remember that your hope is not is not found in the redemption of the Republican or Democratic Party or uh, Libertarian or legalization of marijuana or throwing everybody in jail who drinks too much booze. That is not the answer to people's problems. The answer to people's problems has always been and will always be Jesus Christ. That's the answer to our problem. Even as his children, the answer to your problem is Jesus. Embrace him, run to him. And I know you got that funny feel on your stomach because I got it too, watching this. It's, it feels like we're watching our nation being ripped apart. Uh, just want to remind you that it's been ripped apart before, and I'm not just talking about the Civil War. You've got, you know, pre you got senators shooting at each other. Remember, uh, you guys love that T-shirt of, uh, oh man, of course I'm drawing a blank, that says you guys can go to somewhere else. I'm going to Texas, you know, Davy Crockett. That was actually said, you guys know, on the Senate floors. He was leaving. That's because they hated him. He was a rogue, and and uh, he got pushed out, and it's always been that way. We got stories of people shooting each other right outside of the Congress, and, and I just want you to know that it seems more intense because we can access it and we can be a part of it. I, but, but your hope has always been in Jesus, man. I mean, I, that, that's your hope. Your hope is in Jesus Christ. And, and, and 100 years from now, that's all that will matter. matter. So, so do the best you can for this country. Raise your kids to love God. Be a good citizen of this country, but do what Peter said. Remember that your real citizenship is in heaven. That's where your real citizenship is. And uh, I just want to remind you, it is well with your soul if you're a child of God. If you are not a child of God right now, then it is not well with your soul, and all you got is politics. That's all you got. You got politics, your group, your, your Facebook account, that's all you got. And we're here to tell you there is more. And it's not found at Carpenter's Way Baptist Church. It's found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Having met him, you're welcome to be a part of our family and the dialogue we're having because we've got people from every political angler, angle here. And you're welcome. You're welcome. That's why we don't have any flags on the stage because this, this place, this is not a little America. This is a little piece of the kingdom. This is an, an embassy for the kingdom of God. And Jesus Christ is not a Republican, nor is he a Democrat. Uh, he is Jesus Christ. And uh, just like we've talked about in the past, somebody reminded me this morning, the question is not whether or not Jesus is on our side. The question is whether or not we're on his side. 
And whether you're Democrat or Republican, left or right, you better be asking yourself, am I on Jesus' side or am I demanding he's on my side? There's a lot of junk being thrown out there. Verses out of context. Within its context, this book speaks to us. So, okay. Done with my little message. Now it's time for my big message. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan the prophet is sent by God to say something to David. David, the king of Israel. He's about 50 years of age at this time, and this is what the Lord tells him to say in 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 to 14. There were two men in a certain town. It's getting dark, but I have an iPad. There were, there were two men in a certain town. You want to see me. One was, Bless you, fam. Bless you. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owed a great, owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb that he had bought. He raised that little lamb, and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb, and he killed it, and he prepared it for his guests. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to that poor man for the one he stole, for, the, for having no pity. Nathan said to David, you are that man. In like a Star Wars moment. I mean, you know, you are that man. I just, that's powerful. These are real stories. This really happened. This prophet is actually telling the king who's surrounded by his military that could cut his head off, you are that guy. You're that guy who stole from a poor man's lamb. The Lord God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and I saved you from Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that hadn't been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then? Have you despised the word of the Lord and done this terrible deed? And what he's talking about, for those who haven't been with us, is he slept with another man's wife, Bathsheba. And then it goes on to explain, verse 9. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in sight of all Israel. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, yeah. Yes, you have. Look at this, though. But the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. What we're about to look at together in the next few weeks is the high cost of forgiven sin. There is still a cost Despite God forgiving David's contempt for him, as Nathan tells him, and ignoring God's clear instructions, his family will blow up. His nation, because of all of this, will end up in civil war, and he will pay a deep personal price for his forgiven sin. I Look, on a personal note, I love talking about grace. I grew up in, in, in a culture of a church like many of you that spent all of our time talking about how, how evil we were, how sinful we were, and grace, the scandalous message of grace, and it is scandalous, the free, the free, the freedom of the grace, the free cost of it to me, taking his son and putting him on the cross 
the scandalous nature of mercy not giving me what I deserve, the scandalous truth of grace giving me what I don't deserve, all of those things have absolutely changed my life, changed me to what I am today, and I love talking about it. However, in our, in our present time where grace is often talked about, it's become imbalanced. And by imbalanced, what I mean is, is not that it's not true, but there's still a cost to indulging in your flesh, even if you're forgiven by God. In our Christian culture today, the truth that Paul taught, all things are lawful for me now, and he's talking about sin. All things are lawful. We do not teach that not all things are profitable anymore because we're afraid of sounding legalistic. God's grace, and let me be clear, is offered to anyone who seeks it. He will solve your sin problem and forgive you from your sin, and your relationship with him will be restored without a doubt and without any cost to you, just of your pride. However, there's a high cost of forgiven sin that still plays out in this life unless, unless, and that's what this morning's message in the next few weeks is about. It's that caveat. There is not a way to remove the cost of sin but there's a way to make it less impactful. And David doesn't embark on it. So we're going to embark on this section of history, not only of King David and his reign, but also the Hebrew nation. And I, I want to remind you before I pray for our, our time today in the next few weeks, um, I want to remind you that there are only two ways, two, in which you learn wisdom of life. Wisdom is knowledge applied, right? Wisdom. There's only two ways in which you learn those things. One is by listening to others, their experience, and, and their warnings. And the second way is consequences. There's no exception to that. You will learn from one of those two ways. And the problem is, for most of us, we, don't, we hear people's warnings, we hear people's words, we, hear, we, hear the, we read the scriptures, but for whatever reason, we want to blow it off as if it doesn't apply to us. And I'm here to tell you that if you will listen for the next few weeks, it will save you and your children and your grandchildren enormous pain. If we can learn from David and the nation of Israel, and I'm pretty excited about where we're going to go the next few months, because what's going to happen is over the next six weeks, we're going to finish 2 Thessalonians. We're not even in there. We're going to end 2 Samuel. And then we're going to jump for the next few weeks into 1 Kings, and we're just going to kind of run through what happens with the nation. Uh, we're going to learn about Solomon. And he makes things even worse than David. And then after that, we're going to look at the nation splitting in four directions, and then what happens? Because after that, you've got the minor prophets and Ezra and Nehemiah. And basically, if you remember, in the book of Daniel, he pleads with God to restore the nation. And God sends an angel to say, no, not yet. I'm going to restore the nation, and that's what Christmas is about. We're going to land at Christmas because it's the best part of the story. You see, if you're here this morning or you're watching on the internet and you have so royally screwed up your life that you don't even know where up and down is anymore, I'm here to tell you that for you, God sent Jesus. And that's what we're going to celebrate this Christmas, that he wrote himself into the story of humanity because even a nation that, was, that had committed themselves to obeying him, the summary statement is the Ten Commandments, even this group of people that had these laws couldn't keep the laws and they mess it up. And, and I want to tell you from my observation, there's about ten years that are good in the nation of Israel. Literally ten years. 
after he moves them back into Jerusalem. They defeat him. They rebuild the city. They do all these good things, and it gets good, and David gets bored, and then he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant in, and then he wants to build a temple, and God looks at him and says, did I ask you to build a temple? Am I unhappy with the tent? It all fits. We've been talking about this. And David gets bored, and he starts overthinking. Have you ever done that? He starts overthinking. And then he gets bored, and when he should be off at war, he starts checking out the neighbor lady, doesn't he? He starts checking her out, and it destroys the nation. And the nation never recovers, ever. And it will recover one day, based on my understanding of Scripture, at the Millennial Kingdom, Jesus Christ will take the throne. That's one of the Davidic covenant things. He's going to take that throne. But until then, well, that's what Christmas is about. So this is what we're going to do for the next couple months, okay? To those of you who said, okay, thank you. For the rest of you, you're along for the ride. Buckle your seatbelt. Let's pray. God, I ask you to speak through your word. Word of God, speak to us. And may we be a people that are reminded of just how messed up our flesh is, but how merciful our God is. And may we be return, may we be reminded of our hope being in you. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Samuel 13 begins with, now, now David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar. And Amnon, her half-brother, fell desperately in love with her. Uh, in my Bible, there's quotes around it because it should be translated in lust, and you will find that out in a moment. Amnon became so obsessed with Tamar, <clears throat> excuse me, that he became ill. Now you know where we get the idea of lovesickness. That was funny. I'm going to have you stick your wet finger in the ear of the person in front of you if you don't wake up. She was a virgin, and Amnon thought he could, he could never have her. <clears throat> Excuse me. Amnon is the oldest of David's son, and because of that, culturally, he was next in line to the throne. It was forbidden in the... My beloved son. <laughs> Thanks, Zach. Did you put salt in it, dude? I would have trusted it from Hannah just a little bit more. Our relationship is so new, she wouldn't dare do that. Anyway. All right. Back to our text. Uh, it was forbidden in the Mosaic covenant or agreement. Don't let the religious words throw you off. It was an agreement. At the base of Mount Sinai, I want to remind you that God didn't just say, this is what you're going to do. He invited them. And they said, we will do this, just like you did it at Salvation. We will, I, we will make you our ruler. It was a covenant. It was an agreement. And the people said, in accord. He asked them like three times, go back and read it. And the nation as a whole, it says, says we will follow. We will keep this agreement. In that agreement that you know as the, as the uh, Mosaic covenant between God and the Hebrew people, they agreed that they would not have sex or marry a sister or even a half-sister. It's found in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 27. Verse 3, but Amnon had a very crafty friend, his cousin Jonadab. Stay away from people by that name. He was the son of David's brother Shema. One day, Jonadab said to Amnon, what's the trouble? Why should the son of a king look so dejected morning after morning? So Amnon told him, I'm in love with Tamar, my sister, or my brother Absalom's sister. Well, Jonadab said, I'll tell you what you do. Go back to bed and pretend that you're ill. When your father comes to see you, ask him to let Tamar come and prepare some food for you. Tell him you'll feel better if she prepares it. And as you watch, 
and feed you with their own hands. Ever have a friend like that? In case you're not clear, Eve had a friend like that. It was a serpent. They aren't friends at all. Anyone who will help you sin. Anyone. It says that he knew that he couldn't have a sister. Anyone who will help you get what you know you shouldn't have, which are all over the internet today. Anyone that will take what you know is right and wrong and tell you that there's a misunderstanding, it's not wrong, it's just who you are, is lying to you and not a friend. In fact, Solomon, David, and Bathsheba's son would tell us later that better are the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. So he tells him, just fake your sick. Tell your dad who loves you so much that what would make you feel better is to check out your sister. And then she can feed you from her hands. So Amnon lay down and he pretended to be sick. And when the king came to see him, Amnon asked him, please let my sister Tamar come and cook my favorite dish as I watch. Then I can eat it from her own hands. So David agreed, and he sent Tamar to Amnon's house to prepare some food for him. Um, a couple things. I know that there's people out there wondering, was it a cultural thing? It wasn't. It's just as twisted as you think. You see, the truth is, if you look at biblical history, and I encourage you to not ignore the Old Testament, you'll learn some characteristics about Jehovah God, and you'll learn some characteristics about his creation man. And one is that we have a looking at things we can't have problem. In fact, if you remember, it says that Eve, when she saw that the fruit that she couldn't have was beautiful and delicious and it was desirable to make her wise, she stared at the fruit. David himself was looking, was checking out, actually investigated who that hot woman was next door that was married to another man. He was checking her out. He was looking at her. Pay attention here. Here's free. This is free, okay? Don't stare at stuff you want that you know you shouldn't have. I'm going to tell you right now, and some may disagree, and some of you may have a problem for this, but I want to be abundantly clear. Your attractions, whether they be illegal or legal, are your attractions. For whatever reason they got there, whether they're for the somebody of the same gender or therefore somebody who's somebody else's wife. They're there. It's not whether or not you are going to have attractions in your life you shouldn't feed. That's not the question. The question is, will you stare at them because you can't have them, or will you turn and flee them like we talked about last week? The instructions for the child of God is not to overcome your temptation, but to flee youthful lusts. Run from them. And Eve didn't do it. And David didn't do it. And Amnon doesn't do it. And there's another observation I'd like to make here before I jump back into the text. The job of a parent is not to give your kids everything they ask for. That's not the job of a parent. That's not even what a loving parent does. Your job my job as a parent, even of a 22-year-old son that's about to get married, and his future wife, and my daughter who's turning 20 this year, no more, no more teen Wilkies right now. My job as their parent 
with all the wisdom that life has used to afford me in both good and bad situations are mine now to share with my children who are too stupid to know when they're about to destroy themselves. And I know for everybody under the age of 40, you just got offended at the word stupid. Could you please admit that you're naive? Please. There's something weird going on today where 16-year-old girls are smarter than their 40-year-old parent. It's weird. And, and, and TV portrays that where all of a sudden we have parents apologizing for caring too much about their kids. The fact is, you should overcare for your kids. And you shouldn't apologize for it unless you overdo it. Then you say, look, I'm having a hard time adjusting to your adulthood, to the fact that you're engaged. This has never happened to me. I want to give you lots of room. Some of you have struggled with this, but not me. But the fact is, you need to give your kids room as they grow. But that doesn't mean you don't still inflict your truth what... By the way, I'm so tired of that. Sorry I said it. There is not your truth and my truth. There's just truth. Truth is truth. Right and wrong, it exists. I don't care what people say. Part of the confusion in the church is we're beginning to question whether truth exists, whether right and wrong exists. I assure you it does. I assure you it does. You'll see in this text that it does. But your job, but my job as a parent, with all the wisdom that God has allowed life to afford me in both good and bad decisions that I have made as a parent, is to protect my child from compromising situations that they're too naive or stupid or too blind to see for themselves. That is my job. That's my job. To be clear, this is a weird request from a, from a sick son. Oh, I just, I'm just so sad, Dad. And David wants to make his kid happy. You think helicopter parenting is new today? It's not. What do they call it? Lawnmower? You know, you mow their lawn so they don't sweat while they're at college. You think that's new? It's not. David just wanted his boy happy. And all that it would take to make him happy for his son was to watch his half-sister cook for him and then feed him by hand. That's twisted, in case you're not clear. Your kid, if your son comes to you, just to be clear, if your 20-something-year-old son says they're not feeling, they're sad, they're grieved, they're depressed, well, what will make you feel better? How can I minister to you? Well, if my sister could come and cook for me while I check her out, that, for the future, that's not a good request, okay? Everybody clear on that? Because I think sometimes we're fuzzy on, on what's okay and what's not. That is not their truth. That's twisted. And David should have known it. Because David was checking out somebody he couldn't have either. I was talking to one of our parents this week, and we were talking about how one of the uh, most painful or weirdest things that happen to you as a parent is as your kids grow. And you better all nod, or you're lying. As your kids begin to grow, you begin to see your sin in them. Right? Okay. Eight, of you, eight of you nodded, the rest of you have no children. When all of a sudden you realize, because as you get older, you begin to realize your flesh and your weakness and your blind spots, right? It's kind of depressing because you, in your 20s, you were sure you had everything together. And then as you get older, you realize that you have less together than you thought you did. And, and one of the things is, is when your two or three or four-year-old sin nature begins to creep out and you go, wow, that's, that's me. Now, you don't tell your husband that because he'll use it against you. In your next fight, it's going to sound like this. They're acting just like you. Don't do that, men. Don't do that. That's not good. You will end up in the hospital. But the truth is, you see your, your sin in your kids. You see your flesh. You see your inclination towards things. And what we mostly do is we don't talk about it. But, but that's when David should have seen this. David should have seen this in his oldest son, Amnon. 
You see, the problem is it wasn't just checking his sister out. That's not the point. And it isn't just sexual sin. Because the truth is there's a pattern of sin in David that we've been talking about. David doesn't think the law applies to him. He thinks he can move the Ark of the Covenant on a cart when God said, don't put it on a cart, you carry it. But, he, you know, he, he goes 90%, it's the Ark, it's coming to Jerusalem. Come on, I built a new Ark. And God says no, and he kills Yuza because of it. I'm going to keep connecting these things because truthfully, the sin with Bathsheba is the same sin that was with, with the ark. It's, it's not taking God seriously. As soon as David found out that that was somebody else's uh, wife and somebody he knew's uh, daughter, he should have backed off. He should have said, I think she's beautiful, but boy, she's not mine to take. But he thinks he's special. He thinks that he's, God's going to grade on a curve. I'm such a good king. I'm so tired. I deserve a little bit of a moral vacation. And he takes one, and it destroys his family and the nation. He takes a vacation. He takes it into himself. David thought the law didn't apply to him. And now Amnon doesn't think the law applies to him as it relates to his beautiful sister. In this story... David not only doesn't speak up when he hears his son asking for a weird thing, he actually sends her to him. He sends Tamar to her brother so that, and I want to remind you, I'm not making this up, this is what it says, so that he can watch her cook and feed her from his own hand. David provided the context for the sin. Verse 8, when Tamar arrived at Amnon's house, she went to the place where he was lying down so he could watch her mix some dough. Then she baked his favorite dish for him, and when she set the serving tray before him, he refused to eat. Everyone get out of here! He's kind of a weenie in my mind. Everybody leave! Amnon told his servant, so they left. Then he said to Tamar, Now bring the food into my bedroom and feed it to me here. Why are we eating in your bedroom? So she took her favorite dish to him. But as she was feeding him, he grabbed her and he demanded, Come to bed with me, my darling sister. No, my brother, she cried. Don't be foolish. Don't do this to me. Such wicked things aren't done in Israel. Where could I go in my shame? And you would be called one of the greatest fools in Israel. Please, just speak to the king about it and he'll let you marry me. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. And since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. This is clearly not allowed in the Hebrew nation under the agreement the, the nation of Israel made with Moses and God, and they both knew it. If you want to know just how freaked out Tamar is, her whole thing of just ask my dad, dad or your dad to let me marry you, it's a ruse. It's not real. She knows that wouldn't be allowed. Actually, the law commanded that if a man marry his sister or half-sister, what would happen is they would have to be thrown out of the Hebrew nation. What she's trying to do is a woman who is being raped is trying to talk him mentally out of it. She's going, no, no, stop, stop. Just talk to your dad. She wants time to run away, and that doesn't happen here. Verse 15. Then suddenly Amnon's love turned to hate, and he hated her even more than he had loved her. Get out of here, he snarled at her. For those of you who haven't been with us, I think it's important that you say that in light of all that's going on in our country this week, this is the next section of the, of the book we're studying. This is not on rape because of rape accusations in this country. This is what it looks like. 
This was never lust or love. It was lust. Lust, when fueled and acted upon, never ends up to its fantasy. Somebody who lusts for better feeling and takes drugs need more drugs to cover the first drug that, didn't, that eventually loses its power. If your solution to life's problems are alcohol, it'll never be enough alcohol. It just isn't. Lust is the insatiable desire for more of whatever it is you're wanting. And it always leads to disappointment, and that's what happens here. After taking her, after using her, he now resents her, and he throws her out like trash. Verse 16, no, no, Tamar cried. Sending me away is worse than what you've already done to me. This is a cultural response of a girl who's damaged goods now. No one would ever want her. She would live her life without any kind of man. She had been defiled and shamed and now abandoned by him at no fault of her own. In her mind, it would be better if he married her and then they were both cast out of the Hebrew nation. At least she wouldn't be alone. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. The end of verse uh, 16 says, he shouted for his servant and he demanded, throw this woman out and lock the door behind her. Wow. For, for those of you who have been mistreated or abused, that's exactly what it is, isn't it? It's exactly what it feels like. This is a real story. It really happened by the oldest son of David, second in line to the throne. When you let your flesh rule your body, you think you're an exception to the statement. To make things more honest, to make things even worse, verse 17 in the Hebrew doesn't even say woman. It's translated in the New Living as he shouted for his servant, he demanded, throw this woman out. None of the modern versions actually translated as written. It says it. Throw it out of my presence. He's not only just used her and trashed her, but now he's dehumanizing her. Another side note. To all of my virgin, unmarried friends out there, true love will wait for the right time to have you. I want to be clear. If you are dating or engaged to somebody that wants to have sex with you before marriage because you're engaged and in the Lord's mind it's a spiritual wedding, they love themselves and their desires more than you. You should have little yellow flags about being with that person the rest of their life. True love, biblical love, godly love cares more about the person you are that is the object of your desire than it is your own desires. That's lost on the church today. We're doing less and less marriages of virgin couples because we live in a culture and a time where everybody out there is saying it's okay. And I want to remind you of one of the things that was said here. One of the things in this text is when Tamar uh, is being grabbed by her brother, she says, we Hebrews don't do this. Do you know why she said we Hebrews don't act like this? Because the rest of the world did act like that. You see, the moral code of God's people is not what the world is doing or what they feel or think or desire. It is what God tells us is right and wrong. That's being lost on us today. I beg of you to keep your moral compass founded firmly in God's word, not in your feelings. Whether you're right or left, it is not the party plan that tells you what right and wrong is or feelings or, or, or your compassion for people. It is God's word that dictates truth be firmly grounded in it. Again, if you are not married and you are dating someone that loves themselves and their desires more than you, 
they don't honor your values and the values of your heavenly father if you have to lower standards not to lose somebody run it would be better to be lonely than divorced true love will wait because true love loves what's best for the person that they claim to love than their own desires true love is selfless and serving don't be with anyone who demands their own or wants their own way more than their care for you and that includes my future daughter-in-law Hannah if this one starts wanting his wants more than you and I'm not just talking sexual you run from my family this isn't truth for you this is truth for me every young lady out there every young man if you're in a relationship where she wants to lower your moral code for the purpose or leave let her go it goes both ways it's not going to end well back to 2 Samuel 13 verse 18 so the servant put her out and locked the door behind her how about that can you imagine what she's feeling she was wearing a long, beautiful robe as the custom in those days for the king's virgin daughters. But now Tamar tore her robe and put ashes on her head. And then with her face in her hands, she went away crying. Her brother Absalom saw her and asked, Is it true that Amnon has been with you? <clears throat> well, my sister, keep it quiet for now. Since he's your brother, don't worry about it. So Tamar lived in a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard what had happened, he was very angry. Yeah, I'll bet. End of sentence. What's missing? Action. And though Absalom never spoke to Amnon about this, he hated Amnon deeply because of what he had done to his sister. This is a mess. This is exactly what Nathan prophesied would happen to David's family because he took Bathsheba <clears throat> a woman he was not supposed to have because he took her this was the result of that his sin was forgiven but he goes on to say that because of this these things are going to happen and this is one of those things the problem is this is only the beginning for as David then killed in order to cover his sin Absalom the full brother of Tamar immediately sets a plan to illegally avenge his sister's rape there was in fact a legal process to deal with this how it should have been handled what a legacy David is about to have. And to add insult to injury, when he hears of the rape, he's angry, but he doesn't act. He does nothing. We can certainly speculate as to why he does nothing, for the king did have options. One of the options was to follow the legal responsibilities. For instance, the law was that if you raped somebody who was a virgin, you were then forced to marry them, pay their father a, a fee, and then... Uh, but if it's their sister, they have to leave the nation. So David could have forced them to marry so that he would have to take care of her the rest of his life, but they would have left. He doesn't do that. It is also possible that David puts the judicial process in place and probably would have had his life taken from him. Amnon would have been killed, but there was a legal process by which that happened. But David doesn't do either. Actually, he doesn't do anything but become angry, and he seems to freeze setting up the next card that's about to fall. The question of why does he freeze, I've been thinking about all week. And I can't be certain of the reason, but I have my suspicions and I want to share them with you. Guilt is that thing you feel when you know you've done wrong and it needs to be made right. 
Guilt doesn't always lead a person to making it right, but it's that feeling that you're responsible for because you slept with somebody else's wife or you slept with somebody that wasn't your wife. That's guilt. You've earned that. But even when a child of God runs to God and finds mercy and grace, forgiven of that sin, the next thing is shame. Shame is, has really nothing to do with the behavior that caused you shame, but it's how you think other people are perceiving you. Shame is, a, a, is pride. Shame is the feeling that everybody's talking about me, so I can't do this or that because they know my sin and they'll talk about it. The truth is, shame makes you impotent. It has nothing to do with God. Guilt is conviction. Shame is not conviction. Shame makes you freeze. It is uh, scary because I think David freezes because of his shame. So what should he have done in my opinion? Well, James 5.16 tells us that we are to confess our sins to each other. Ironically, that is talking to Christians. It has nothing to do with forgiveness. We confess our sins to each other so that we can warn each other from doing the things that is destroying us. I would add, especially when it is your children. When you start seeing your kids behave like you, when your DNA starts flowing through their veins and affecting their decisions, you confess your sins to your kids because this is what that conversation sounds like. I'm gonna use Zach. Zach, don't do that. Why shouldn't I do that? Because it's not gonna end well. How do you know? Is that not a great millennial question? What we usually go is, because I know I'm your dad and you should listen to me. The right answer is, because I've done that and it hurt your mother. And let me tell you something. That hour of pleasure, it ain't worth the life of pain. So I, my son, my advice to you is run from that thing. Stop staring at it. Stop longing for it. Stop wanting it. Run from it. On the other side of it, after the pleasure, we all know that Scripture teaches that sin is fun for a season. But on the other side of that is self-hate, self-loathing, hate of others, bitterness. That's what's on the other side of that. Run from it. That's what he should have done. He should have sat down with Amnon when his son asked him for some weird thing and said, what are you really upset about? What's really going on? He should have dug deeper. He should have said, until you tell me, I'm not sending your sister to cook for you. He should have talked to his son instead of sending her. And then after the fact, he should have, well, that's coming up. Dave could have, David could have stopped the downward spiral of his family, but to do so, he would have had to do more than be mad that his son raped his daughter. He would have had to get involved and even open up and admit that his own forgiven sin was devastating, but doing that, he could have instructed them to change course, but he doesn't. Parents, nobody wants to lay their dirty laundry before, before their kids. But do you love your kids more than your pride? It's a darn good way to protect them. Tell them the truth. That is a conversation I have a lot with people here. What should I do? Tell them the truth. We're divorced. Can't fix it. Yeah, but you can protect your kids from having it happen. Tell the truth. You want me to tell my kids that I had six girlfriends? No. I want you to tell them that anybody, anybody other than your wife isn't worth it. Maybe fun for a moment, 
but in the end it will destroy you. Confess your sins to each other. David does it. Verse 23 in 2 Samuel 13. This happens because of it. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep were being sheared at Belhazer, near Ephraim, Absalom invited all the king's sons to come to a feast. This is about 14 miles from Jerusalem. This is how it happened. He went to the king and he said, my sheep shearers are now at work. Would the king and his servants please come to celebrate this occasion with me? The king replied, no, my son. If we all came, we would be too much of a burden to you. Absalom pressed him. But the king would not come, though he gave Absalom his blessing for the party. Well then, Absalom said, if you can't come, how about sending Amnon with us? When David says no to the offer, the trap is now set. In case you're not paying attention, this is a ruse. This is a plan. He's been laying in wait for two years. And in case you're not clear on this, David suspects it. Look at the next verse. Why Amnon, the king asked. You know why I asked that. He has a hunch. But Absalom kept on pressing the king until finally, like with Tamar, he agreed to let all of his sons attend, including Amnon. To be clear, what David does is instead of confessing his sin and saying, you don't want to kill somebody, it's not your legal right to kill, I've done that, it doesn't end well, what he does is try to out-scheme his son by sending all the brothers. You see, that wasn't the initial request. The initial request was David and his group. David says no. I suspect he knew he'd say no. And then when he doesn't, he goes to the firstborn son. Well, then send Amnon. David realizes what a strange request that is, so he says, why him? And then basically goes, oh, I got an idea. Instead of actually confronting my hunch, instead of actually sharing my concern because this is what I did, instead of that, he actually sends the whole group of boys because he thinks that that would protect him. It doesn't work. So Absalom prepared a, fe a feast fit for a king. Absalom told his men, wait until Amnon gets drunk. Then at my signal, kill him. Don't be afraid. I'm the one who's given the command. Take courage and do it. In other words, I'm responsible. So at Absalom's signal, they murdered Amnon. Then the other sons of the king jumped on their mules and fled. Now, I, that's kind of weird. I looked at that, and I know this is a non-important thing. But a mule, a mule, I, I, I visualized this this week, and it's kind of weird. This little... Um, <laughs> I'd have picked a camel or a horse. It seems more majestic, but a mule in biblical times was a sign of wealth. So even though it's kind of awkward to envision in your mind, this is actually a statement that it was a royal group. This was the royal chariot of its time, a mule. You should know what the guinea pig was. That was really something. Another joke that didn't work. I didn't think it would, but I thought I'd try it. So they prepare the feast, they jump on their mules and flee. As they were on their way back to Jerusalem, this report re reached David. Absalom has killed all the king's son. Not one is left alive. The king got, uh, got up, tore his robe, and threw himself on the ground. His advisors also tore their clothes in horror and sorrow. But just then, Jonadab, remember him, our friend from the beginning? And by the way, you should ask yourself, how did he know that only one was dead? How did he know that this plan was years ago? Let me read it to you. But just then, Jonadab, the guy you should not be friends with, the son of David's brother Shema, arrived and he said, no, 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 don't believe that all the king's sons have been killed. It's only Abnon. It's not a big deal. 
That guy deserved it, right? I mean, I, I actually think this guy thinks he's going to be patted on the back. It's only Amnon. Absalom, Absalom's been plotting this ever since Amnon raped his sister Tamar. I mean, I don't know why. I don't know if David is in such grief or this is another opportunity. He doesn't even say, how do you know? I mean, you've been here all day. He knows because he was a part of this. No, my lord, the king, your sons aren't all dead. It was only Amnon. Meanwhile, Absalom escaped. Then the watchman on, Jeru uh, on the Jerusalem wall saw a great crowd coming down the hill on the road from the, from the west, riding their mules. I added that because I think it's, you'll notice that Clint Eastwood never did a movie like that, but it's kind of the same scene with weird-looking animals. I think I'm funny, and I just think you guys have no sense of humor anymore. It's been a rough week. He ran to tell the king, I see a crowd of people coming from the uh, ornate... <laughs> Anyway, the road along the side of the hill. Look, Jonadab told the king. There they are now. The king's sons are coming, just as I said. I actually think this guy thinks everything's good. They soon arrived, weeping and sobbing, and the king and all of his servants wept bitterly with them. And David mourned many days for his son Amnon. Absalom fled to his grandfather Talmai, son of Amahud, the king of Geshur. That's 80 miles away from Jerusalem. He stayed there in Geshur for three years, and King David, now reconciled to Amnon's death, longed to be re uh, reunited with his son Absalom. This is a mess. All because of David's sin with Bathsheba and the cover-up murder, and because he let his pride develop into shame that kept him from leading his family through it. If he just would have talked with his family, a lot of these things could have been avoided. If he just would have said, don't do what I did. In fact, I'm not going to let you. I want to make this drill into your heart. I want you to understand that when it came to Tamar, he provided her. When it came to Amnon being killed, he provided him to his brother. These are commands he gave. This guy is culpable of these deaths because he wouldn't stand up. There is still a high cost to forgiven sin. But it can be mitigated if you choose not to let sh shame reign in you, causing you to watch the cancer of your sin destroy others around you within your family. But it takes courage and humility. Engage the truth with those that are hurting because of your sin. Don't just stand by and feel sorry for yourself. You are forgiven and reconciled to God. Now take your eyes off yourself and your sin and fight for your kids. Fight for your family, for whoever is being affected by your sin. Fight for it. Admit what's true because the lie will never make it. The truth always comes out. Tell the truth. It will set you free just like it quoted in Sanford and Son. I just aged myself. The truth will set you free. It will set you free. Once, the, once you keep your, your hidden thing is open, you don't have to lie about it anymore. You can talk about it and you can tell everybody, don't do what I did. It didn't work out well. But as long as you lie, you have to keep lying, and you have to over-lie, and you have to make up lies for the lies, and make up stories, and you've got to... Or you know what you do? If you don't want to get shamed again, you just keep your mouth shut and, and stew inside. Some of you know that because that's how you feel. So you want me to confess my sin to my wife? Yes, I do. She's going to find out anyway dangerous. What if she leaves me? Then we'll have to talk to her about forgiveness. Engage the truth. You are still 
the workmanship of God in Christ Jesus with things to do. Don't remove yourself from the game. But David doesn't do that. And his family continues to pay. Look at chapter 14. Joab realized how much the king longed to see Absalom. So he sent for a woman from Tekoa who had a reputation for great wisdom. Watch what he does. Pay attention to what he does here. He said to her, forget the story, okay? She's going to tell a story, but pay attention. It sounds like Nathan. I'll, I'll give you the, the punchline. He said to her, pretend you're in mourning. Wear mourning clothes and don't put on lotions. It's like an act, a play in three acts. Act like a woman who has been mourning for the dead for a long time. Then go to the king and tell him the story I'm about to tell you. Then Joab told her what to say. When, when the woman from Tekoa approached the king, she bowed her face to the ground in deep respect and cried, oh, king, help me. What's the trouble, he asked. Alas, when anybody starts a sentence with the last, you can be sure it's drama. Alas and anon. My husband is dead. And my two sons, I, there's like six of you who think I'm funny. I, we really need to work on your humor gland. My two sons had a fight out in the field. And since no one was there to stop it, one of them was killed. Now the rest of the family is demanding, let us have your son. We will execute him for murdering his brother. He doesn't deserve to inherit the family's property. They want to extinguish the only coal I have left. And my husband's name and family will disappear from the face of the earth. Man, Joab has learned how to get to him. He, heard, he was probably in the room when Nathan used the story. Let me tell you a story about a rich man and a poor man with a bunch of lambs. This time, let me tell you a story about what happened to my family. My coal, my coal is about to get, get quenched. It's gonna, it's gonna go dark and I'm gonna be alone. But boy, is it effective. Leave it to me, the king told her. Go home, and I'll see to it that no one touches him. End of story, right? Well, remember I told you there were three acts to this play? Pay attention. Okay, thank you, my lord and king. The woman from Tekoa replied, but if you're criticized for helping me, let the blame fall on me and my father's house, and let the king and his throne be innocent. If anyone objects, the king said, at this point, the king's annoyed with her. Woman, I said you're going to be fine. If anyone objects, the king said, bring him to me. I can assure you he'll never harm you again. Then she said, swear, by, swear to me by the Lord your God that you won't let anyone take vengeance against my son. I want no more bloodshed. As surely as the Lord lives. That was weird. As surely as the Lord lives, he replied, not a hair on your son's head will be disturbed. Go ahead and speak, he responded. She replied, why don't you do so as much for the people of God as you have promised to do for me? You have convicted yourself in making this decision because you have refused to bring home your own bandless son. All of us must die eventually. Our lives are like water spilled out on the ground. In other words, what's Amnon? It can't be gathered up again. But God does not just sweep life away. Instead, he devises ways to bring us back when we have been separated from him. I have come to plead with my Lord, the king, because people have threatened me I said to myself, perhaps the king will listen to me and rescue us from those who would cut us off from the inheritance God has given us. Yes, my Lord, the king will give us peace of mind again. I know that you are like an angel from God discerning, and whenever people start flattering you, you can be sure that you were right the first time. Alas and anon was not the beginning of a statement, it was the beginning of a play. I know that you're like an angel of God discerning good from evil. May the Lord your God be with you. King replied, I need to know one thing, and tell me the truth. Yes, my lord, the king. Did Joab put you up to this? And the woman replied, My lord, the king, how can I deny it? Nobody can deny anything from you. Yes, Joab sent me and told me what to say. He did it to place the matter before you in a different light. 
but you are as wise as an angel from God, and you understand everything that happens among us. So the king sent for Joab and told him, all right, go and bring the young man, bring back the young man Absalom. This is a mess. In case you're not clear on this, when your kids can't come to you and say, Dad, you need to change this, it's a mess. When you don't have a two-way conversation, when people can't speak honestly, you have a culture of deception. That's what it looks like. This is a mess, not just because people are raped, not just because there's death, but because they can't even talk to each other. Joab bowed his face to the ground in deep respect. He said, at least I know that I have gained your approval, my lord, the king, for you have granted me this request. Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king gave this order. Absalom may go to his own house, but he must never enter, come into my presence. So Absalom did not see the king. Now Absalom was praised as the most handsome man in all of Israel. He was flawless from head to foot. And I gotta tell you something, that is a burden to carry. <laughs> this next line, I said that before this next line because this one kind of freaks me out again. It says that he'd cut his hair only once a year and then only because it was so heavy. I mean, he weighed it out and it was five pounds. I'm a little concerned that some of that went down his back. I mean, it's just, that's a lot of hair. But apparently back then that was awesome. He had three sons and one daughter. His, uh, his daughter's name was Tamar. You think the guy's obsessed? She was very beautiful. Verse 28, Absalom lived in Jerusalem for two years, but he never got to see the king. Then Absalom, talk about deception. Then Absalom sent for Joab to ask him to intercede for him, but Joab refused to come. Absalom sent for him a second time, but again Joab refused to come. So Absalom who demands what he wants because he's so handsome. He reminds me, what's the character, uh, Gaston? Gaston, no one, do, do, do. sorry. I'm having a good time with this text. So Absalom said to his servants, go set fire to Joab's barley field, the field next to mine. I'll get your attention. So they set fire, uh, the field on fire as Absalom had commanded. And you want to know the funny part? Verse 31. The general came to Absalom at his house and demanded, why did your servant set fire to my field? And Absalom replied, because I wanted to ask you, uh, the king, why he brought me back from Geshur if he didn't intend to see me. You burned my house down. I want to talk with you. I mean, you, you, come on, you've got to look at this. This is ridiculous at every level. You burn people's fields down so you can have a conversation? I don't know about you, but I'm showing up with, the, with SWAT, half the military. He's the general. I'm bringing the best sword. I'm probably carrying Goliath's sword that's still in David's court, and I'm going to cut this guy's head off. But he goes. He gets exactly what he wants. Don't give your kids what they want. It's killing our culture. It's killing the church. God will never accept your sin, no matter how many people think it's okay. It is what it is. You bow the knee to God, not to the church. Stop listening to people who tickle your ears with lies that sound like the truth. Sin kills, it destroys families, individuals, nations. And it's time for us to wise up. It is. It's time for us to recommit ourselves to God's word. So Joab told the king what Absalom had said. He gets his way. Then at last David summoned Absalom, who came and bowed low before the king, and the king kissed him. End of story. This part of the story. But when you give your kids everything they want, 
and you don't speak truth to them, they will eventually destroy you as well. That's upcoming. This is not the happy ending that it reads. It's just the beginning of looking at the high cost of forgiven sin. But this is what it looks like to be forgiven and allow the shame to control you while you watch your sin destroy those around you because you're too embarrassed to deal with them. Three things as I wrap up. Number one, run from sin. And I'm not talking about running from sin that you're not tempted with. We all have a sin we like. Some of you are gossips. Some of you are hateful. It feels good to tell people off. Things like, bless your heart. <laughs> Some of you are adulterers or want to be. Some of you look at porn. Some of you have same-sex attractions. I, I get it. It's, it's sin. It's desire. It's in your flesh. I don't know what the reasons are. Who cares what the reasons are? God's asked us to stay away from youthful lusts. If you steal, stop stealing. Well, I, I, I work at a bank, and it's awful tempting. Work at a gas station. Steal gas. Drink it. <laughs> don't stare at the fruit you're not supposed to eat. If you struggle with porn, don't shop at Victoria's Secret. Don't even walk by or look at the Zales across the way as you go. It's such a beautiful poster. I've always been a big fan of photography. That ain't photography. If you're a woman, you can look at the picture. It's shopping. You know what I'm talking about. We don't all struggle with the same thing. You know what you struggle with. I say this in the fruit of the Spirit. Don't be an idiot. If your neighbor lady is bathing in the backyard, either build a higher fence or don't go in the backyard. Yeah, but I paid for this house. I should enjoy the backyard. It's beautiful. Ugh. Second thing. If you're in the midst of the chaos that looks like this story, and it's clearly the high cost of your past forgiven sin, God loves you, and he has forgiven you. But don't let shame keep you from teaching your kids and your grandkids. So you want me to meet with my whole family and tell them, look, you don't have to lay your dirty laundry out, but tell them the truth. Sin is fun for a while, but it will eat you alive. Tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. And as you see your kids stepping into the same sins, then you go deep. I never wanted to tell you this, but I'm about to tell you a story. And it's going to be a painful story. You see, there was this man with two lambs. <laughs> Sorry, that was funny. Thank you for laughing at that. That was a good joke. I'll probably use it next week again. Don't let shame. Satan will use shame to keep you from mitigating the cost of sin. If you've committed adultery, don't tell your wife that it's your fault, but if she were nicer, you wouldn't have done it. It's your fault. Ladies, if you've reconnected with your high school boyfriend on Facebook, it's not your husband's fault. It was a bad decision on your part. But he looks so good on Instagram. Get rid of Instagram. Stop looking. I'm not going to get on your case because he looks good. That picture was taken eight years ago. And it's been airbrushed. Tell the truth. Confess it. I have done this many times with my children when they were so out of control that they made me mad. And I, of course, reasoned discipline on them. And their mother reminded me that 
really they hadn't done anything and I was out of control. I would then sit with them and say I was wrong. You ask them. They'll tell you that. And finally, if you've never been forgiven of your sin, run to Jesus. Don't run to the church. The church can't save you. Run to Jesus. Jesus said, all who come to me, I will in no way cast away. I'll never pass you off. I'll never... If you come to me, I'll take your burden. He will. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, even if it involves having a relationship with your sister. I know that's gross, but sin is sin. Imagine how God sees it. But he sent his son to die on the cross for you, knowing what you would do. If you've murdered somebody, there's enough blood for you as well. He forgives you. Well, if I confess my sin, will I have to go to jail? God will work that out. But better to deal with God and go to jail than spend eternity apart from him. He loves you. If you go to jail and you're his child, I assure you that there's ministry in there for you. What if my spouse leaves me or my kids lose respect when I tell them? I can't promise that won't happen. What I can promise is in time, when they do what you have done, they will remember the honesty and the mercy of God in your voice and you may be their redeemer. Let's close in prayer. Father, David must hate this story. But now in your presence, he must love this story. Because it's hopeful. If this is the character in Scripture you said is a man after your heart, own heart, then there is hope for us. So I pray this morning for the men and women in this room and those watching on the internet who are your children that today they would confess their sins to you and thank you for grace and mercy that you have already extended to them. And that today would be the day of scandalous freedom in life, of no secrets. I pray that out as a result of this story, we would be better at protecting our children from the sins of our youth. Make us courageous parents, courageous grandparents, and for those who do not know you as their Savior, may today be the day of salvation. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Bible study is going to start in about six minutes. If you're visiting with us or you'd like to pray, I'll be up here.